Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start. Oil and gas. I have a theory, which I hope, please, no one on the call sell any oil and gas stock. And actually, don't, don't pay too much attention uh, in terms of if you've always wanted to own Diamondback or something, it gets down to your level. Please proceed. But you know that the, the stock market expression, sell in May and go away, I kind of think that's true for oil and gas prices. And the reason for that is that the Biden administration is not going to sanction Iran and Iran is going to build up its production. And so that's incremental oil that will have to be uh, accommodated by world demand. And uh, against that, I mean, Europe's doing much better on vaccinations. So, uh, but remember the Saudis and the Russians and a few other OPEC producers still have some reserve capacity that they're not producing. So, uh, WCI in the mid-60s with France generally trade three or four dollars over. That that may be that may be all the increase we're gonna see this year. Uh, on natural gas, I'm happy to report natural gas prices with firm and in an unexpected way, uh, LNG prices in, in in North Asia and in Europe are pretty good. The JKM price, which is North Asia is Ten dollars and change, and that was thirty dollars in spot price in January. But I really thought it was going back to four or five dollars, which is where it was uh, in the in the summer uh, in uh, in 2020. But it it's not. It's holding pretty well at ten ten and a half, and Europe is generally about a buck behind that, and that's holding pretty firm. So LNG exports are strong. Uh, and that certainly helps with U.S. gas demand. Um, as far as the equities go, a lot of them have moved. Um, one of the favorites, Cabot, uh, merged, uh, announced the merger with Simrex. Uh, financially, it makes some sense. I don't know about combining two basins. Simrex is back merge about a third and Delaware basin about two thirds. But, uh, and I think people who own Simrex were disappointed that they didn't sell the Chevron. They have a lot of their acreage in the Delaware Basin is a farm in from Chevron. And I think everyone kind of hoped Chevron would somehow pay a premium for Simrex. Um, in terms of macro, um, there's increased concern about uh, the Federal Reserve balance sheet. Uh, it's now seven and a half billion or something. And, if you projected current trends with them buying 120 billion a month of treasuries and, and mortgage loans, it 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 keep marching up there. Uh, and so, you know, 120 billion a month for uh, you know 18 more months, and you'd be up around nine trillion. There's no need in our economy for the Federal Reserve balance sheet to be nine trillion. In effect, what they're doing is they're they're monetizing our deficit. Now, whether or not we have price inflation, who knows? 
I mean, the price of lumber is very high. Price of copper's gone up a lot. Price of uh, farm commodities is up a lot. But I feel about the same way about those that I feel about oil and gas pricing. Most of that increase there in those commodities may have already happened. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether it will find its way into wholesale price indexes and the CPI. Uh, I do think and continue to think, continue to be outspoken on the subject that stocks, stocks of companies that are, you know, have free cash flow and whatnot are trading higher than they otherwise would. In other words, NVIDIA higher, Amazon higher, Alphabet higher, uh, because um, of, uh, you know, low interest rates and this perception that you have to protect yourself against. Uh, your dollar assets being worth less in one year, five year, ten years than they are now because of um, uh, it's not inflation of you know what a quart of milk costs or other consumables, but uh, inflation in in uh, certainly in in, uh, in assets in real estate, residential real estate, in and uh, 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 things like that. So. Um, uh, Will um, will the Federal Reserve start uh, stop buying 120 billion dollars a month of securities? Absolutely. Will they happen? Will that happen before the fall? I think not likely. Remember, the Federal Reserve Chairman famously said, "We're not even thinking about thinking about tapering," which is what they call that process. Um, so we'll see. Um, uh, and with that, uh, Mike and I have a couple of uh, tech updates. Uh, and one is NVIDIA is going to split its stock. Uh, I don't know whether that makes any difference. Another is that Taiwan Semiconductor, like everyone else in Taiwan, is, is uh, having trouble finding enough water, uh, which apparently is needed for chip plants. But on those two subjects, we'll turn it over to Mike. And when he finishes those two, we'll talk about uh, payments. MasterCard, Visa, American Express, PayPal, Square, uh, 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 cryptocurrencies, whatever. But over to you, Mike, on the first two items. Perfect. Sound, sounds good. Yeah, the, uh, the NVIDIA announcement's interesting. The I believe it's a four-for-one sp stock split. There's some speculation that maybe they're trying to get into an index like the Dow or something like that. I, I don't know whether to believe any of that. At the end of the day, a stock split doesn't really provide any value to shareholders, um, though it does tend to move stocks in the short term. I, I don't think it's really much to, to, to worry about at the moment. NVIDIA does have earnings this week, though, and they're expected to be very good. I, in fact, if they're not very, very good, I would be highly surprised um they're they haven't been able to keep, keep anything in inventory there's the uh, inventory checks have all come through at some of the lowest levels they've ever been um so everything's selling out very quickly um what was oh our second piece is uh is taiwan semiconductor and this is normally their 
this is normally tai, Taiwan's uh, tai, I believe it's called typhoon season. Generally, get a ton of rain this kind of year. It, it's literally been a year since they've had significant rain uh, on the island. So they are rationing water to the point where uh, they're trucking in water to the semiconductor facilities. And uh, you you need to remember that. Um, Taiwan is very dependent on semiconductor manufacturing. So uh, they've rationed household use of water, turning it off multiple days per week. Um, so, you know, this could end up being a major problem. A company like Taiwan Semiconductor has the resources, political connections and whatnot in order to do their best to avoid it. But as we've been talking about, this chip shortage is far reaching and things like this, could potentially exasperate them. So, you know, we've talked about the different risks to Taiwan Semiconductor in the past. How, you know, there's always been a political risk between Taiwan and China, um, but this this uh, water shortage risk is sort of a, a new and an increasingly present one. Um, I, I did look at the weather forecast there the next couple of weeks. Next week, they're supposed to get some accumulation of rain. Unfortunately, I don't think it's uh, I don't think they solve the problems, but I think at this point it's better than nothing, um, given given where they're at. Good. With that, um, I I'm, I want to I want to lead on the payments. I once owned Mastercard and made oh a couple of times on my money on it. It's a great company. Uh, even though I own Mastercard, I didn't spend that much time looking at Visa. I was just kind of time constrained. Um, I've never really looked at American Express. Um, the um, uh, I I kind of knew as PayPal was uh, uh, became independently public that I should look at it. Didn't miss making three, four, five times of my money. Uh, and similar situation with Square. And uh, so it's going to sound like. Uh, uh, the reason I'm kind of negative on payments is because I've been wrong. I haven't, you know, gotten uh, into it. Now, why am I negative on payments? Um, I guess I guess it's what uh, investors call, and certainly Buffett Munger calls, circle competence. I've never, for the longest time, I was negative on all financial institutions insurance companies, investment banks, commercial banks. And I guess the reason for that was I was just unclear as compared to, you know, a company like Lowe's or CarMax or Amazon or Fastenal or, you know, exactly Comcast, other companies I own, exactly what was going on. And I just felt that there was a chance for uh, things to go badly wrong. Similar, similar to the way financial institutions got just hammered, and you know, some didn't survive in '08. So I've, I've just always been wary. Um, I've tried again recently on PayPal and Square, and again, I granted they're up a lot, and that can become a problem because you think, hey, the money's been made or they're overvalued or whatnot. But uh, there is technology here now. There is a view that the future is going to be uh, where you can uh, uh, move money around 
um, uh, uh, over the internet, and maybe maybe that is uh, the future. Uh, pulling from experience from uh, the industry I know a lot about, the energy industry. Uh, look what happened to Colonial. I mean, it seems to me that anyone can be hacked, and you know how can you protect um, uh, protect yourself, or how can a a, a uh, you know someone owning uh, a payment system, whether it's a bank or independent like PayPal or Square or Mastercard or Visa, how can you really stand up? I mean, it just seems like you know, uh, hacking is, is uh, you know, just uh, always seems to stay ahead of uh, the, whatever security systems can be mounted. Uh, and with that, I'm going to, having having kind of set, you know, my biases and turn it over to Mike. And Mike is going to explain where, uh, where Hunt Lawrence is off on some of this. Okay. So, sounds good, Hunt. I... I got to be honest and tell you that I haven't made any uh, successful long-term investments in the payments companies either. So uh, we're at least you did well on MasterCard. I, I I don't have one to my credit, and part of that is similar to you. I I didn't I didn't have the conviction to make it fit into my portfolio. I watched Square. I watched PayPal. I think I signed up for PayPal when it first was introduced in 1999, and I was still a, a high school age kid um so so when we did, did a little we did sort of talk about the fact that we were going to do this so i did a little bit of history and looking at you know what what has happened within the payments industry and i kind of pointing out two i'm going to point out two different facets of payments that i think are important to think about um and then we'll get into the squares and the paypals but also where cryptocurrency kind of fits into the big picture. Um, so in, if you go all the way back to the 13th century, the first bills of exchange were, were developed in order to make it easier to transact rather than having to carry gold to make a transaction. Um, as time progressed, like Western Union started doing uh, uh, money transfers in about the 1800s and the early charge cards all started to pop up in the early 1900s with Diners Club being the first real credit card in the 50s. Um, since then, the credit card uh, industry has gotten huge and, you know, MasterCard being one, I, I don't think they went public till 2000, uh, I think it's 06 they went public. Um, so the, you know, that industry has developed very quickly. Um, in 99, PayPal launched electronic payments, which was important because the internet was coming of age then and, and conducting internet, uh, a fully digital transaction was relatively challenging. Um, in that same year, and this will become relevant in a second, Amazon launched OneClick, uh, which was patent protected, basically the ability to press one button on a website and buy something. Um, that that patent expired a few years ago, but um, just the, uh, the the point of it is is the friction that it removes in the payment process. So, anyways, uh, Bitcoin came around in 2009. So that's that's kind of where we are. So the the two important things that I, I kind of pull from all this is that there are 
two facets to payments that are important. Um, and one of those is the speed of the transaction um, and the other one's friction. Um, so for speed, think back to uh, what one of the historical events I thought was really interesting is in the 1700s, the banks in London would get together daily at a tavern to clear checks. So you kind of envision all these these bankers getting together, having a beer, and uh, you know clearing the checks among them that their patrons may have may have written. Um, so transaction speed in that case could be extremely slow, right? You write your check. The, mer the merchant takes it to the bank, the bank goes to deposit it, and they have to wait until they get together for beers in order to exchange it, and it gets around. Um, fast forward to today, Visa can process 24,000 transactions in a second. Um, <clears throat> having a centralized system like Visa is advantageous for that, those efficiency purposes. Um, the concept of Bitcoin is very anti-centralization. It's a completely decentralized network, um, which has some advantages and some disadvantages. Um, the, the advantage is it's highly secure. Uh, the disadvantage is Bitcoin can only really process seven transactions per second. Um, and again, we're going a little bit deep here, but the, the, the point is, is that these cryptocurrencies are one of their value propositions is that they potentially could supplant an existing payment network. Um, the challenge is being that you need both sides to adopt it, both consumers um, and the and the merchants, and they'd have to adopt the technology to make that all happen in, in between. So it's it is sort of a long play. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that Visa and Mastercard are are maybe an oligopoly. I mean that. There's, it's very difficult to break into their business. So, so that's your transaction speed. Um, again, the the I guess none of the cryptos really compare to Visa, although Ethereum's 2.0 is supposed to scale to 100,000 transactions per second. Um, if that happens, that would be interesting to find out whether that makes it uh, more favorable on a, a, as a comparison. Um, the second thing I want to dig into, and this is a little more relevant to digital wallets, and this is your PayPal Square Venmo. Um, this is actually also has to do with the Apple uh, Epic lawsuit and um, um, <clears throat> and eBay, which also is related to PayPal. So we, we can tie this all together here. Um, so transaction friction is how difficult is it for me to make this purchase? So back in the day, I've got to take my gold to the market, weigh it out, transact. It takes a long time. It's risky, all these things. Um, fast forward to credit cards, it's relatively easy. Um, and then look at Amazon One Click, which is really easy. You press one button on my credit card information stage. It processes the order and sends the, the order to my house. Um, Digital wallets were an interesting innovation and that kind of spun out of PayPal um, with the PayPal, PayPal allowing you to hold a balance there. Um, and then their acquisition of Venmo and, uh, and then Square also offering that same service where you can send payments among friends very quickly and easily, thus replacing cash. Again, um, reducing friction in transactions and making things uh, 
easier for consumers. So I think what you see on this end of the payments world is really uh, kind of like we talked about last week where platforms uh, lock their users in by rules where that's kind of like your AT&T and Verizon that lock in their customers um, versus a digital wallet like a Venmo or Square, which don't have any lock-in because you can go use something else, but the user experience ends up being very good, so people use it. So that's how they win their business. So I see it as an evolution of the business model. Um, if you want to look at the way how quickly these things have grown, um, there are more um, accounts at Venmo and Cash, each of them individually, than at J.P. Morgan. Um, and that's all happened since, you know, in the last decade, really. Um, so, so see how quickly those things can come together. The, the other piece to think about is these businesses are inherently different than your traditional banks, where uh, a credit card company may pay $250 to uh, $2,000 to acquire a customer. They're, these companies are acquiring customers for approximately $20. So, um, well, they're not doing much with them today other than transacting money and making a fee on some of those transactions. Um, the opportunity actually is quite big. Um, <clears throat> how, so, how threat, hey, Mike, how threatened do you think uh, JP Morgan, B of A, Citibank is by these alternative payment systems? I mean, it, they, as I recall, they own MasterCard and Visa. In effect, MasterCard and Visa were developed by banks and then turned into public companies. But how threatened do you think the large consumer retail banks are by this development alternative payment systems? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think they, I, I don't think they were, they felt threatened by it maybe 10, five years ago, they probably didn't feel it. I think now they're starting to recognize it. Um, if you look at the market caps, so uh, Visa's got a market cap of almost 500 billion, 494. Um, PayPal is 300. So just looking at, at market cap size, like they're, they're starting to play in the same territory. Um, they don't do the same amount of business for profit, but it, it, it's it's significant. And what what this phase of the internet has shown is that by you can win customers by making the customer experience really really good. And I don't know banks historically have a pretty bad rap, especially at the at the uh, retail banking end of things as far as customer experience goes. So um, so I think they should be concerned, especially on the retail banking front. Right. Does that translate into, um, well, as you said, the market caps, they, they, you know, no bank could afford to buy PayPal. Do, do you, um, and, and I suppose that the, what the platform effect, which you're talking about uh, last week, um, will have an impact. In other words, if uh, Citibank or, or uh, JP Morgan or B of A tried to uh, develop a competitor to PayPal, isn't it? Because you know you already have quite a lot of scale in PayPal. Exactly, and you have, and you're talking about uh, a bank who's traditionally not great at customer experience, especially digital customer experience, investing resources to try to compete against 
a company whose entire business is built around pleasing a digital customer. Um, that's a that's a tough competition to win. And there are there are things to do that. There's a company called Zelle that essentially um, enables payments between banks and it acts kind of like a, a a layer on top of your bank account um, that and they do deals with banks in order to be a digital payments platform. Is it as good? Is it better? I, I don't really know. Um, I think it's it's something that they they need to do to stay relevant. Yeah. Just to close out close out our, our 30 minute time, this reminds me of uh, how effective uh, the US government became uh, you know, during the Obama years and, and into the Trump years at doing sanctions. Uh, and of course, one of the entities they were sanctioning was Iran. And a fair point is, why couldn't Iran, who owns tankers or can contract for tankers, what keeps them from, you know, just bringing tankers into their, um, uh, to their loading facilities, loading them with oil and sending them off to China? For example, the Chinese will, uh, you know, for $5 less or something per barrel, will, will take, you know, a load of oil for sure. And it's the uh, international payment system that uh, we really, as a government, began to be very effective with uh, because the uh, all these transactions are settled in dollars. Somehow the U.S. Treasury is able to block transactions. So, uh, for example, when uh, when uh, um, when like Belarus uh, and forcing down that plane and, and introducing sanctions, I believe that the payment system between banks is such you pretty well can isolate an individual or a government or an organization by simply not <laughs> they'd go back they'd go back to having to get under a tree and exchange checks uh, because they would not have access to the international payment system um the um or use bitcoin <laughs> yeah or, or use bitcoin and one of the one of the uh, i I scanned the article. I didn't read it. I think it was in the journal this morning. Uh, uh, the writer was saying, uh, why don't we just ban the use of cryptocurrencies? Because then uh, you, the hackers, uh, Darkside or whomever, uh, would not have a way of getting paid. Uh, because uh, you'll remember the, at least the press accounts of the Colonial hack, uh, Colonial decided after a day or two, and presumably with the acquiescence of the, uh, you know, the FBI or whomever was representing the U.S. government uh, to pay the uh, to pay the ransom uh, in Bitcoin, four and a half million dollars, and uh, so they got a key back that would enable them to uh, <clears throat> to get their system working again, um, and. Again, on payments, and we, we may do more payments next week. I may try to get myself up the curve on payments because this this is bears on a lot of things, including some of the other companies uh, we're invested in or might invest in. But uh, <clears throat> Colonial, uh, based on the, the interview given by the uh, press conference given by the CEO, uh, uh, was concerned because uh, where their 
hack showed up is they couldn't keep track of of money flows. In other words, if they brought gasoline or diesel to a facility in Georgia uh, and, uh, and 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 Exxon say was supposed to get paid by whoever the retail chain was, uh, their system just didn't allow that to happen. Of course, what they worried about is here that you have this gigantic pipeline system. Suppose the same hackers uh, could interfere with your all your <clears throat> all your operations and, and in effect close valves that shouldn't be closed and open valves that shouldn't be open and wind up with you know gasoline on the ground all over or worse explosions or whatnot. So Colonial felt they had no choice but to close. Then after some period of time, had no choice but to pay the ransom to get what they call encryption keys back. But uh, it all started with uh, <clears throat> apparently with the colonial payment system, and they don't have any evidence that uh, their ability to control the system valves and and uh, <clears throat> all kinds of telepathy uh, uh, was compromised. So, so unless something happens in uh, in the news, uh, Mike and I may be uh, may be doing payments next week, and I think the one we're gonna probably lead off with the square because both of us have spent more time looking at square and are kind of more interested in their strategy than PayPal. But uh, all that's for next week. Take care. Stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.